At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to look deeper into 1 Peter, tuning into our current series, Unshakable, Steadfast Hope in an Unpredictable World. Join us as we allow God's Word to shape us and renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. We are in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, as you go there, let me just uh, invite you to our worship night, which is on October 29th, 7 p.m. That day as a church, we are setting that day aside as a day of prayer for our nation. So if I could just encourage you, put it on your calendar to be praying throughout that day, to be fasting if, you, uh, if the Lord uh, calls you to that. And then that night, we're going to come together and just sing. We're going to sing. We're going to pray on behalf of our nation. And so um, October 29th, uh, very excited about that. Let me also say to those of you who are uh, following along with us from home, so glad that you're joining us. Uh, we've been praying for you as a staff, as a church family, we've been praying for you. And we would love to hear from you. If you maybe you, ha you haven't connected with any of the, of the staff, with myself, with any of the other pastors, would you just send us a quick note through email, through text, however you wanna do that. We just wanna know how you are. We are um, reaching out to as many people as we can individually through calls, through email. But if you think, hey, you know, it's been a while that I haven't talked to anyone uh, from, uh, from the church or from the team, the staff team, just let us know. I got an email from someone this past week that I hadn't heard from a long, uh, for a long time. And it was just so, so encouraging to know how they were doing. So uh, we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. The apostle Peter says, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for, for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. There's a story from Tsarist Russia about a priest who was walking along, minding his own business, when a royal guard stopped him at gunpoint, and the guard demanded, what is your name, why are you here, and where are you going? The priest looked at him quizzically and then said, how much do they pay you to do this work? And the soldier was kind of taken aback and then said, well, uh, three cold picks a month. And then the priest said, I'll pay you 30 if you stop me every week and ask me these same questions. Now, my first comment about that story is, what kind of money did priests in Tsarist Russia make? You know, I want to know that. But those are important questions. What is your name? Why are you here? And where are you going? They speak to our identity and purpose. They provoke reflection on that which is most important about us. Our identity, our purpose. My daughter recently shared with me uh, a TEDx talk where a student spoke very frankly about his experience while attending Harvard University. He said that during high school, he was, you know, a, a good student, but not Harvard material. But on a whim, he applied and he got in. And when he got there, he got his first C plus ever. And he talks about just this identity crisis for him and so many of the other students when they were all of a sudden surrounded by the number one students in the world. You know, everyone can't be number one. Everyone can't be president of the student body. Somebody has to be secretary, but you didn't go to Harvard to be secretary. And so he talked about how he, along with many other students, began to have this identity crisis. But you can't show weakness at Harvard. And so what do the students do? They start hiding their feelings. 
hiding how they truly felt. He said that when you went around campus and you asked students, hey, what's up? The answer would be nothing or I'm tired or I'm busy. But the answer was never, I'm stressed. I'm struggling. I need help. You see, friends, family, society put these in incredible expectations on these students. But what do you do when you're not living up to them? Over 50% of Harvard students experience some symptoms of depression. And the speaker even shared how during his sophomore year, one of his roommates committed suicide. Our identity and purpose matter. And it's so easy for us to begin to live out of a false identity, a shaky identity. How about you? Are you aware of the ways that you live out of a false sense of who you are, out of a shaky sense of who you are? We're doing this series, Unshakable. And we're looking at what the Apostle Peter has to say to us to reinforce for us our identity and purpose as followers of Jesus. And today we come to a high point in the letter's conception of our identity in Christ. So we're going to look at who we are, why we're here, and what God has done. First, know who you are. Know who you are. I'm a pastor. I work with a lot of different kinds of people, and I love doing what I do. And I'm often surprised how much people don't know who they are, how much we don't know who we are. Look at verse 9 one more time. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Remember where we left last week. Last week, Peter left us with the two building projects at work in the world right now. God's building project with Jesus as the cornerstone, and then the building project of those who reject Jesus. And they reject him. They stumble over him because they disobey the message, and they're destined for shame when they face God. And so that's where he left us. Well, now he returns to those who do see Jesus as chosen and precious. And he gives us four descriptions of our identity in Christ. They are, we are a chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. Let's look at those briefly one at a time. He says that we are a chosen race. In Peter's letter, The work of God in bringing us to himself looms large. It's how he started the first chapter, the first verse. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect. There it is, same word as chosen here. In verse 1, it was elect exiles that he called us. Now he calls us a chosen race. What is that? What does it mean to be chosen? To be chosen means that God has set you apart to belong to him. And he has chosen you, not because of anything in you, but because of who God is. And when that started landing on my heart a number of years ago, my sense of identity, my sense of who I am began to change radically. And there was a specific passage in Deuteronomy that was so helpful to me. So I want to read it to you. It's in Deuteronomy 7. You can check it out later on. But just listen. This is Moses, Moses explain, explaining to Israel why they are to be different. Here's what he says. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. So Moses says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you 
and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Moses is explaining to Israel why they are to be holy, set apart, and that is because they belong to God. But then he says, the Lord chose you. The Lord has chosen you and he has set his affection on you. And then naturally the question would arise, well, why? Why has the Lord chosen us? Right? I mean, when, when you were in school and someone chose you to be a part of their football team, it's because you are good, right? When someone did not choose you to be a part of their team, it's because you are no good. Even if you were the last one standing, they would still look past you to see if there was anybody else they could choose. Harvard chooses the best. Companies choose the best. And so Israel naturally, naturally would ask, well, why has the Lord chosen us? Is it because we're the best? Is it because of our numbers? And then the answer comes back from Moses. He says, it was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all people. So Moses comes back and says, no, it's not because you were so great. It's, because you, it's not because you had so many numbers. As a matter of fact, you were the fewest of all people. So then why? Why did God choose Israel and set his love on Israel? And then he gives the answer. It's because the Lord loves you. Period. And you need to hear this. The Lord loves you because he loves you. That's it. There is no deeper answer. This is the best news that we could ever hear. That we belong to God because God made us his own out of his love for us. It's not because we're smart. It's not because we are rich. It's not because you're beautiful or useful. All the different reasons. If you think about the kinds of things that have given you your sense of worth, just think about this honestly. It's always because of one of those things, something in us that makes us lovable. But what this is saying is nothing in us is what made God choose us and set his affection on us. He simply did it because he loves us, period. There is no deeper answer. When that began to land on me, it just freed me up. Because I was able to go, I don't have to perform for God. God doesn't love me because of my performance. And I definitely don't have to perform for anybody else. It's so freeing. God loves me. Because he loves me. That's who we are as God's people. We are a chosen race, chosen by him. We saw it in the gospel of John not too long ago. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. So that's the first one. The next three, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's possession come from Exodus 19. What's happening in Exodus 19 is that God has just taken Israel out of Egypt a massive display of his power and favor over them. And so now they're free. They are free. He's delivered them. And in that context, just think about what you might feel if after hundreds of years of oppression of, and slavery, finally your oppressor is defeated on your behalf. And it's in that context that God comes to Israel in Exodus 19 and gives them his covenant. He makes a covenant with them and he says to them, if you will indeed hear my voice, and here they are. He says, you will be to me a treasure possession, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Peter picked those three right out of that passage. So what does it mean to be a royal priesthood? Royal priesthood means that now Israel belongs to God 
And now they represent God to the world by their true worship of him rather than all the gods that the different nations around them worshipped. So they have their true worship of God and by their holy lifestyle, by a, a morality and a way of living that was completely separate and different from everyone else around them. Unfortunately, Israel did not do very well with this. Then Peter says to us that we as the Christian church also are a royal priesthood. Royal. It's amazing to me how obsessed people are with the royal family in Britain, right? You know, Charles and Diana, Harry and Meghan, Philip and Kate. But Peter says to us, we are royal. Just think about that. We are a royal priesthood. Why? Because we belong to the king, the king of the universe. And so we are a royal priesthood, which means that we now represent God to the world because we've been washed by the blood of Christ and we are being formed by his word. So when people, the, the only way for people to get to know the true God in the world today is through us as a royal priesthood. We make him known by our lives, by our speech. Then he says a holy nation. Now a holy nation overlaps with a royal priesthood, but here's what it does not mean. For Christians to be a holy nation does not mean that when a country, whatever country, has a majority of Christians, then that country becomes a holy nation. This is not what this means. And yet this is so often how Christians in our country have read verses like these. Peter is not saying anything about any nation state. He's not saying anything about America or Colombia or Zimbabwe. What Peter is talking about is the fact that Christians throughout the world and throughout history are their own nation. We are a holy nation without a land. Do not miss that. That's why he called, called us in chapter 1 verse 1, elect exiles. Exiles do not have a homeland. But I want you to think about this because that understanding that all Christians throughout the world, throughout history, all of us form one holy nation. And just start thinking about how this should alter your sense of patriotism. Now, in two weeks, the text is going to speak to us about how we are to love our nation, to love our country, to serve it. Okay, so we're going to get there. But hear me out here. You and I, as Christians living in America, have more eternally in common with Christians from Thailand or Bolivia or any other nation than we have with Americans who don't know Christ. Ponder that. You and I have more eternally in common with a Christian from the Roman Empire 1,800 years ago, for that matter, than we do with a fellow Michigander who lives down the street and doesn't know Jesus. And so in light of that, for example, should we care about the wages of workers in Indonesia who make our clothes, many of whom are Christians? Think about this. Because there are many injustices perpetrated against people, many of them Christians, around the world in order to support and sustain our consumeristic lifestyle in our nation. And it's got to, these kinds of texts have got to do something to that, to us, because when he says we are a holy nation, there are Christians in Japan, in China, in Africa, in South America, all over the world who are a part of that holy nation with us. Do we care about them? 
Remember that we have a dual citizenship, but only one of them is eternal. And then lastly, a people for God's own possession. So this descriptor, again, is tied to what he's saying in Exodus 19, and it has to do with God choosing us, God setting his love, his affection on us as his special people. You see, everything in the universe belongs to God. Everything in the world belongs to God, human and non-human. And yet Israel belonged to God in a way that Babylon, Assyria, Rome, Greece did not belong to God. And it's the same for Christians. Christians and the Christian church belong to God in a way, in a special way that the rest of humankind does not. And so this is, there's so much more we could say about those four things, but this is who we are. This is our identity. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And the reason we're all these things is because of who God is and because he set his affection on us, not because of anything in us, not because you're smart or beautiful or rich or useful or athletic or young or married or single or a woman or a man or Asian, or Latino, or black, or white. This has nothing to do with why God loves you. He just loves you because he loves you. What does that do to you? I hope that that knowledge begins to help you get rid of all the false and shaky identities that friends and family and our society and our own hearts put on us. So take all of those and hurl them into the abyss. Know who you are in Christ. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, then I invite you to do that now. What are you waiting for? You will live out of a false identity apart from him. Know who you are. Number two, know why you're here. Know who you are, know why you're here. Look at verse nine again, First Peter 2. He says, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So from our identity, we go now to our purpose. We derive our purpose from our sense of who we are. And here, Peter tells us who we are. Why did God call us in this special way to belong to him? This is not the only answer, but this is an important one. The one he gives us here is so that we may proclaim so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light our purpose is to proclaim the excellencies of God that's why you're here that's why you exist that's why God made you that's why he allowed you to live in 2020 in the west where you live right now that's why he put you in your hospital or your school, or your law firm, or your uh, whatever else it is, your hospital, any of these things. It's so that we may proclaim his excellencies. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to proclaim his excellencies? Let me give you a couple of prosaic analogies. They're prosaic, okay? Um, when you go to a restaurant, right, and you love it, you know, say Imperial Taco. Any Imperial Taco lovers here? Let me see. Okay, yes, Jordan, I see you. So good. Uh, but when you go to a restaurant that you love, it'd be whatever, you know, whatever it may be for you, you know, you, and you love it, what do you do? Usually you, you love, if you're not lazy and a bum, you know, you, you, you leave a glowing review, you know, on social media because you want other people to know. Same with a company or with a product or with a show. You know, you become fanatical about it. You tell everybody and their brother. You leave them five stars. You talk about it. 
You know, you're like, have you seen Stranger Things? No, I haven't. What's wrong with you? Stop. Go. Go right now. Go. Go watch it and text me. Right? I mean, we want to know. That's what it means. What are we doing there? We've experienced excellence in whatever way, and now we're telling others about it. We want them to experience it. That's what we do with God. When we've tasted that God is good, we want others to know him. You know, Jim, my friend, came over to the house earlier this week to hang some blinds for us. So he was there working for, uh, with us and for us. And then when he came, I mean, Anna came from Donut Cutter. She had gotten some, some donuts. And so I offered Jim a donut. Now, I had offered Jim many things before. You know, he's come many times, and he always said no. I mean, he could work for like five hours and not eat anything. But, but as soon as I said, Jim, do you want a glazed donut? Without missing a beat, he stopped, he turned, his eyes lit up, and he said, yes. <laughs> and I knew he's tasted the goodness. You know, he has tasted the goodness, you know? But that's what this is. When we don't talk about God we need to really ask ourselves, have we tasted the goodness? Have we tasted the excellencies of God? Because if we have, we're going to talk about it. We're going to proclaim it. We're going to find ways and opportunities to talk about him. That's why we're here. That's our purpose. This is why God has you at GM or at Ford or at your hospital where you work or the office or the school where you teach, on and on. It's so that we may let people know by our lifestyle and by the way that we speak that the God of the Bible is the only true God. And that when people come to him, they will enjoy his goodness and be freed from their emptiness and addictions. Are you free? Have you come to the one who alone can give you the true purpose of your life. That's why we're here, to make him known. And finally, know what God did. So know who you are, know why you're here, and know what God did. And by the way, if you got the, uh, the notes, they have the wrong outline. I'm sure you already know that. You know, but um, it's right on the uh, Uversion app. But anyway, know what God did. Look at the middle of verse 9. Peter says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Okay, when you come to Christ, so now you are, it means that you, you're loved by God, you're chosen by God, and you don't have a false or shaky identity. Now you're free. You have a new identity, a new purpose, and the reason you're, you're free from your distorted desires, which we all have them, we're going to talk more about those next week. You're free from the crushing expectations of friends, family, society, and others. Because now you know that God, God loves you because he loves you. Oh, that's so freeing. And the reason that you have this freedom and this new identity and purpose is because of what God has done. So what has God done? And what Peter tells us here is that God has called us. He has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so I want to give you here a theological distinction that's very important for you to know. And that's a distinction between the external call of God and the internal call of God. They're different. and You want to know them. The external call of God refers to the gospel invitation that God wants to go to everyone in the world. That's the external call. It's the, it's the message of Christ going to everyone 
in the world. I'll give you an example from Mark 13. This is Jesus, and he says, And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. That's, that's, the, that's the external call, right? So the gospel must go to every nation, must be heard by every people, even though many reject it. So the gospel goes out wide, but many people reject it. That's the external or general call. But then there's the internal or effectual call of God. And this refers to the work of God within the person. The external call is what someone like me or yourself, we do. We, we, we bring the gospel far and wide. That's the external call. The internal call refers to what God does within a person, within you, within me, so that we may hear the gospel coming to us externally and respond with faith. That's the internal call. Let me give you another great example of this. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4. You can read it later on. Here's what Paul says. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4. He says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. You see the similarities with what we read from Deuteronomy? Paul says, We know that God loves you because he chose you. How do you know this? Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Okay, so here's what's happening. Paul went to Thessalonica to preach the gospel, to bring that external call of the gospel far and wide, give it to everyone. But many people rejected it and started persecuting them. But other people did believe they became Christians and they formed the church. So then Paul left and then later on he's writing a letter to them. And as he's writing a letter to them, he says, we know that God loves you. We know that he's chosen you. How do you know this, Paul? Because, he says, when we preach the gospel to you, it landed on you not just as mere words. It landed on you with power, with the Holy Spirit, with full conviction. Do you see? That's the internal call. It's something that God does within the person so that you may believe when you hear. And then here in 1 Peter, Peter also talks to us about this call from God, how God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God summoned you. He took you from the realm of darkness and he placed you in the realm of his light. This is something that only God can do. This is not something you can do for yourself. This is not something that I can do for you. All I do is what? I speak words to you, and I trust that they are true words, biblical words, Christ-delivering words, but only God has the power to take those words and make them change you. Only God can make them life-giving words and darkness-removing words by the power of his Holy Spirit. This is why this task of biblical preaching is God working through a human vessel. The preacher is the one talking, but God is the one doing the spiritual work. And so that's what the internal call of God is. The call of God in your life, spiritually speaking, is like the call from Jesus to Lazarus, if you'll remember this, in John 11. It's a great, great account. In John 11, Lazarus dies. He has the sisters Mary and Martha, and they are grieving. And Jesus gets there on the fourth day after he's died. And the sisters are grieving, and so Jesus comforts them, and then he goes toward the tomb. And they're all like, whoa, what are you doing? He's, he's decomposing now. He's been there for four days. But Jesus goes to the tomb, and with a loud voice, he says, Lazarus, come out. And then scripture says, and the dead man came out. Now ponder this. 
Don't miss this. Dead men don't come out. Dead men don't walk unless God puts the breath of life in them, which is what Jesus did. And that very thing is what happened to you and to me the first time we responded to the gospel. You were dead in your spirit, away from God, guilty in your sin, condemned and ashamed, living in darkness. This is what he's talking about, living in darkness. And wherever you might have been, at home, in this room, in some other room, talking with a friend, but what, how, wherever you were, as the gospel was being proclaimed to you, that only in Jesus do we have forgiveness of sins, that only in Jesus do we have eternal life. As that was coming to you from the outside, God by his spirit was working within you so that you could go, yes, I believe, I believe. I believe that Jesus is the son of God and that only in him can I have feel, healing and life eternal. That's God opening your eyes to who he is. And everyone that God calls this way will be in heaven forever. Everyone. He will not lose one of his own. And the result of that transfer from the darkness is that you come to God's marvelous light. What kind of darkness is this? It's not physical darkness, right? We're, we're all here sitting under the same physical light. And yet some of you live in God's marvelous light while, while others of you perhaps live in darkness. So what kind of darkness is this? It's spiritual darkness. It's the darkness that keeps you away from God. It's the darkness that makes it easy for you to gossip rather than to honor people. Or makes it easy for you to resent people from the other political party rather than seeing them as fellow human beings just as broken as you are. It's the darkness that makes it easier for you to look at pornography rather than to look at the exploitation of those men and women in those images. It's the darkness that makes us satisfied with our own food, shelter, and safety, and give no thought to the hunger, homelessness, and violence that is the daily reality for countless millions. This spiritual darkness ruins us morally and emotionally and relationally. This spiritual darkness makes it impossible for us to see, to taste that God is good. But when God calls us out of darkness, out of that darkness, and I hope that you have not lost touch with that darkness, when he calls us out of that darkness, by the preaching of Jesus Christ, he delivers us into his marvelous light. And the first thing that we see in that light is that Jesus came for you. The first thing we see, first thing you see when God opens your eyes is that Jesus Christ came to this earth for you. That just as he called Lazarus by name, he calls you by name. Andrew, Natalie, John, Julie. He calls us by name and we see his love. We see and know that he loves us. God ceases to be a theoretical concept, a philosophical conundrum. And now we know him personally. 
We know in our hearts, we know in our minds that he is true and that he loves us. Peter says here that once we were not a people, he's depicting there the distance, the relational distance that we had from God. But now he says, but now you are God's people. We were orphans, you guys. We were orphans subject to the societies of men to the whims and philosophies and addictions and evil of human beings. But now we are God's people living under his light, his love, his protection. Didn't you love that song, Protector? Don't you love saying that? Being able to say to God, you're my protector. You never, never, never let me go. You said you wouldn't leave me and you won't. You're right by my side. I know you need to hear this today. Because I, I talk to you, and I know where we live. I know where I live. How much the darkness presses in against us, seeking to own us once again. Oh, and we give in. We give in so much and so often. But that's not where we belong anymore. We belong to God's marvelous light. We are his people now. We had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Believers are God's redeemed people. Mercy. We've received mercy. You know what that means? That when God sees us, he sees our suffering. He sees our suffering as a human race. He doesn't see us as free, liberated, independent, modern, confident, self-assertive. He sees our suffering. He sees the shaky identity of that Harvard student who felt immense pressure to hide his true feelings. He sees our false identity as doctors, as PhDs, as lawyers, as engineers, as teachers, the titles behind which we hide our emptiness our loneliness, our addiction. He sees our suffering and he knows that we would never come to him if he did not first come to us. And so he sent his son so that in him we could have mercy. Deliverance. Forgiveness. Healing. Is that you? Are you able to go I'm out of the darkness. I don't live in the darkness anymore. I live in God's marvelous light because he called me out of it. I am his people. I've received his mercy. Remember the questions we started with. Who are you? Why are you here? And what, what has God done? Who are you? If you follow Jesus Christ, you are chosen, royal, holy. Why are you here? To declare the excellencies of the God who called us. Who is God sending you to? Who is he sending you to? As we move into the holidays, who is God sending you to that you may share your life and the gospel with? You know, we have those boxes outside for the Thanksgiving boxes to help people in need. But beyond that, Beyond that, who is God sending you to from your neighborhood, from your job, from your school, so that you can bring them close to you, 
Begin thinking about how you're going to reach out to them and love them. That they may come to know God's excellencies. And what has God done? He's called you. By the preaching of Jesus Christ, by the sacrificial love of Jesus, out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Our God, we love you. Father, we are humbled by your word, by the preaching of your word, by, by the word that is eternal, that comes to us externally. But it doesn't come to us just as mere words. No, Father, it comes to us with power, with the Holy Spirit, with full conviction, because you, Lord, have taken up residence within us and made us alive in Jesus. Father, I pray for any and all of us here that we would be able to identify the false identities, the shaky identities that we have worn like an outfit, perhaps our entire life. Or maybe we've just begun to pick it up and put it on. And yet there is death on the other side of it. Father, I pray that we would replace all of those, hurl them into the abyss, and be clothed with Christ. The fact that he has chosen us because he loves us. The fact that we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to you, God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you that you're our protector. Thank you that you never, never, never let us go. We, we bow before you, our fortress, our freedom, our refuge, our Jesus. It's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.